right, guys, Romans 8. So week one of the study, you have um, been in the, the book for a week now, and you saw that we are in Romans 8. Romans 8, it is the good of the good news. We could say it's the goodest of the good news if we were allowed to speak like that. Romans, most commentators would say, is the most important book in the Bible. And then even within that, Romans 8 is the most condensed amount of good news within that book. It opens, the chapter opens with this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it bookends at the end with what can separate us from the love of God. This is really good news. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the best of the good news. And our text picked up about halfway through in verse 18. Verse 18 says um, this, I consider that my current sufferings do not even compare with my future glory. Paul's saying, I consider or like I reckon that the sufferings of this present age don't even compare with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So it's interesting, guys, this word consider or reckon, I like that. It means like to account for or to think on. When you guys read that verse, don't you want it to be true? Don't you want to agree that our present sufferings don't even compare? Well, guys, if I'm going to live my life like that is true, if I'm going to behave and act like that is true, I have to feel it in my heart. I don't know if you are like that as well, but I, I can't just fake something for very long. So if I'm going to act like verse 18 is true, then I have to feel it. And if I'm going to feel it, then I have to think through it. I need to reckon. I need to account for what Paul is saying, that my current sufferings don't even compare with this future glory. But here's the tension I feel. As I have spent time in Romans 8, guys, here's what I feel. Paul is saying huge things, isn't he? Isn't this just full of huge statements? He is presenting an assurance amidst suffering. And it almost seems too good to be true. Paul is saying there's something weightier than our sufferings. He's saying there's something bigger than our sufferings. There's something um, that is so big that it's not even proportional. And then he goes on and he talks about me and you. He talks about identity. And he talks about how there's an identity for us that is even bigger than we have perceived or than we have dreamt up. Guys, I think that you would agree with me. We want to believe this. We want to nod our heads along with Paul. Because if this is true, then it changes everything. But I feel that tension. Is this too good to be true? So I'm saying, hey, Paul, you better back this. I kind of feel myself saying like, hey, Paul, prove it, man. Show me that you are the right person to declare a crescendo like this. So remember what we said last week. Paul is going to serve kind of like our narrator through this study, through this walk through the Bible. Romans 8, you could think of it as the skeleton for our study. It's going to provide the structure. It's going to hold up this study. So this last week, we read Romans 8, and we read about um, a couple assurances. And that's what we're going to talk about now, trying to uh, tie a bow, uh, maybe tie a loose bow on Romans 8, because actually we're going to be back in Romans 8 every single week. 
But here's one of the assurances that Paul starts with, guys. He says that you can be sure of a big suffering. So it doesn't sound like the goodest of the good news quite yet. Okay, verse 18. We just noticed it's sandwiched between really good news, but actually most of the verses that we spent our time on this week are really sobering, aren't they? I mean, this is Paul being realistic. He is talking about a really big suffering. Listen to these words. When you list them off like this, you realize um, how realistic he's being. He speaks of suffering and waiting and longing, of being subjected to something. He talks about futility. We looked up the word frustration. He talks about groaning and groaning. He talks about bondage. Paul is saying this world is not as it ought to be. And therefore, it's frustrated. The world creation is groaning and waiting. Well, I think we should stop when we're reading texts like this and remember who's talking and then start our questions from there. So I'm saying, okay, if this is Paul who is saying this, well, what does he know about suffering? And maybe some of you have have studied the life of Paul before. I think a lot of you have. Remember, he is a Jew. In fact, he was like a leader and a gold star among the Jews. He's a Pharisee, so that means he's a keeper of the law. Now, he was very passionate about protecting the Jewish way of life. Therefore, his mission was to quiet or to snuff out anything that opposed his religion. Where we are first introduced to Paul, his name is actually Saul at that point. Um, and in Acts chapter 7, we are reading the end of um, the story of a man named Stephen, a follower of Jesus. And this is what we read, guys. It says, they dragged him, Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. When we meet Saul turned Paul, guys. He is the one bringing pain and suffering on the children of God. But when God calls him to himself, after Paul is converted, the theme of suffering presents in a new way in his life. I'm going to read a little bit from Acts chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, this is Paul. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the moment of Saul's conversion on, suffering would characterize his life. There's multiple places in the New Testament that actually list out all of the sufferings that Paul experienced. Guys, listen to this. Um, Beatings to stonings to imprisonments. He says, often I was near death. Uh, Lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked three times. I'm going, dude, don't get on the boat the third time. Adrift at sea, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles. So you hear him even saying, he's got enemies on both sides. Sleepless nights and hunger and in thirst and cold and exposure. And I love this. And then there's the pressure and anxiety for all the churches. Ladies, Paul, our author, he knows suffering And in fact, he knows it from a very unique standpoint, almost like two different vantage points as one who has brought suffering on the children of God and then one who would have it fill his life. So guys, when he paints our picture, when he kind of paints our sad reality in verse 18, he doesn't do it as someone who is kept safe and away from suffering, but he speaks of it as one who has experienced it. He uses these words, again, here they are, waiting, subjection, futility, frustration, groaning. When he uses these words, ladies, it is personal and it is real. He knows our reality because it is his reality. We can be assured that this life will bring suffering. Ladies, you know that line, that continuum that we marked up this week where over here we're not agreeing with Paul that, that our current sufferings, they're not even proportional to how good our glory will be. And I had you guys mark where you are and, and maybe where you want to be and we'll come back to this. Guys, our question tonight is how do we move closer to this side? How can we move down this line? And I think that Paul gives us three assurances. And the first one doesn't sound like good news, but he says, you can be assured that there are sufferings in this world. He knows this as a personal reality, and this is sobering. But we need to also, in addition to this, guys, in addition to just like looking at the reality in its face, Paul also is going to have us really consider some hard truths. And I know at least in my small group tonight, we wrestled with some really hard truths. We asked in our homework, why or what reason does Paul give for suffering? Gave you the little hint, hey, go back and look at Genesis 3, which you will be in this next week. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's a big statement. It's pretty confusing at first glance. Heck, it's confusing at second and third glance. It's saying that creation, all of us, were subjected to futility, or we said frustration, by him who subjected it. Who subjected creation to suffering? According to Paul, it was God. It is God who subjected creation to it. Pulling us back to Genesis 3, he shows us that suffering is the consequence of sin. Suffering is the fruit of the sin. Okay, guys, are you ready for this? If this is true, then it quiets the objection that we often hear of why do innocent people suffer? 
It seems like a good question, doesn't it? How can a good God allow innocent people to suffer? Ladies, according to this verse, it is because they are not innocent. Because if any of us were in the place of Adam or Eve, we would do the same. And if the people we love most and think the most of, if they were in the place of Adam and Eve, according to scripture, they too would choose to rebel against God. They would shake their fists. They would choose their own autonomy, overtaking God's definition of good and evil. Guys, this is a hard blow. I do not say this uh, flippantly. It took all my courage to muscle it up to tackle this question. We don't hear this much in our culture, but I want to invite you to hang with me because this really big statement, this really hard statement will open up a really big hope in just a couple minutes. Okay, within the good, good news, Paul acknowledges our present sufferings. It's important for us to see Paul is not a detached optimist. He is validating us and we should enjoy that. He is validating those of us who have experienced sufferings, which is all of us. There are significant pains and there's a chronic reality. This is what our eyes can see, present sufferings. But what else did we read? Well, starting back with our observation and then moving into interpretation, guys, we marked up identity words, right? We marked up familial words. Uh, sons of God, children of God, adoption, firstborn. Why does Paul talk so much about our identity? Well, he believes us to be a child of God, okay? Recall that Paul knows the story of the Bible. He cannot help but go back into the story of the people of Israel. And that's why he goes off, because guys, he is including his readers, which includes us, in the people of God. Paul says, yeah, you can be sure of sufferings, but good news, you can also be sure of your identity. Okay? You can be sure of your identity. There is so much that we could talk about when we start talking about identity, and this is um, something that we are going to look at through each story each week. But here's what I want to talk about tonight, guys. I want to talk about how suffering and identity are interwoven. How do they affect one another? So we ask these questions in our homework. How could suffering affect our identity? Well, I think that often suffering could make us doubt that we are a child of God. Doesn't hardship and pain sometimes shake us and make us wonder, are we really a loved child of God? Because this pain sure doesn't make me feel adopted. It makes me feel like an orphan. It makes me feel alone. This prayer that just seems to be bouncing off the back walls and never getting answered, that doesn't make me feel like I have a loving father. It makes me feel like I'm alone in this. Our sufferings can rattle our belief in who we are as children of God, and it can rattle us. Ladies, I wonder how often, how often would we confess or do we hear in the people we love this expectation that if we are a loved child of God, then God would not make us suffer. Maybe we wouldn't say it, but isn't that what we feel sometimes? Like, if A, then B. If I'm a loved child of God, then he would not allow me to suffer. But you know what's interesting about Paul? 
I just can't help but wonder, how is it that Paul was able to suffer so well? Well, did you guys notice what he was told right from the beginning, right as he was forming his identity as a child of God? He was told by Ananias how much he would suffer for the Lord. His expectations were different from the beginning. But we also ask the question, then, how could our identity affect our sufferings? We're going to see this question played out through the whole Bible. And guys, what I, what I believe to be true, what I want us to hold to, is that we cannot suffer well unless we hold tight to our identity as children of God. We cannot suffer well unless we are clinging to God as Father, unless we are hugging onto Him as this Father, albeit a Father who may allow or permit suffering in our lives. We will never be able to believe Paul unless we look at our suffering through the lens of our identity. It cannot be the other way around. Does that make sense? We cannot look at our identity through the lens of our suffering and try to wrestle with it there. It's gotta be flipped. We have to know that we know that we know that we are a child of God, that we are adopted, and that he is our loving father. And then we can start to wrestle and fight through the sufferings that are in our lives or in the lives of those people that we love. Guys, I think that the good news within this challenge is that when we can be sure of God's love for us as his children, it quiets the voice of condemnation and it quiets the voice of shame. I think that there are certain kinds of pains in our life or losses or relational conflict that makes us hear condemnation and lies a lot. Maybe we start to believe like, yeah, I guess we're just not worth the good life or or maybe, maybe I deserve this. I deserve more like hardship than just the other Christians around me. They must be more loved than me if their life looks this easy and looks this good. But guys, when we can drive our roots down deep to know that we are loved children of God in a broken world, then we don't hear that condemnation. And we're able to lean into our sufferings rather than harden from them. We can start to maybe make some redemptive sense of them rather than staying in the pain and the chaos. But what else did we look at? Within this portion where where Paul talks about our identity, where he is trying to help us be sure of this, he's also talking about something that I I jotted down as the already not yet of our identity. So this is a phrase that smart, mostly dead theologians penned, this idea of already not yet. So we are already children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made real to us. It has not been made visible to us. So ladies, you are a child of God, but according to Paul, you are waiting for a fuller sense of that identity to come to fruition. There is something still to be revealed. There's another level of adoption. There is another level of redemption. There is something currently unseen that will be made evident about our identity. And he uses the word groaning a couple times. He says all creation is groaning. And then he clears that up even more. And he talks about how these are the groans of childbirth. 
Okay, you can thank me now for erasing my labor stories from today's notes, because I had three of them. One of them was graphic, and I decided to omit it. But we all understand where Paul is going with this. He's talking about groans like in childbirth. Okay, so you stop and you think, okay, that's weird, right? But we're learning to be good students of the Bible, and so you slow down and you try and remember what is the context, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about our identity, okay? He's saying, here is creation, here are the children of God, and they're groaning as if in childbirth. Well, the result at the end of childbirth is a child, or new life, or newness, or someone in my group said, a miracle, or a moment of, of glorious new life. We, as children of God, are groaning because there is something more that is coming. There is something more that is coming soon, guys. Groaning. Paul is acknowledging our pain, right? He's not a detached optimist, which makes us want to actually listen to him. So he says, yes, you're groaning. I acknowledge that you are in pain. But it is also a sign that something new is coming. New life. A new identity. Ladies, this groan is a groan that is producing something. Suffering is the means to a fuller sense of our identity. That is what Paul is saying. Suffering is the means of a fuller sense to our identity. So to keep, keep moving towards understanding this concept, guys, let's go back to that really hard question. Why did God subject creation to frustration? and to futility. It's okay to ask that question. In fact, it would be okay if in the back of your mind you're saying, I know that God is all-powerful and I know that he's all-knowing. So yes, I get that sin brings consequences, but if God's all-powerful, why could he not have just scratched it all and started over? Why could he not, you know, he, he sees the rebellion Instead of subjecting it to frustration, why didn't he just say, scratch, start over, let's do this again, and they don't mess up this time? Well, we could let this conversation go many ways, but I want to keep it tied to what we're talking about in Romans 8 right now. What does he say at the end of verse 20? He says that God subjected it in hope. In hope for something. God subjected it to futility so that after the days of suffering, after the days of futility and frustration, a new level of freedom would be obtained. A bigger glory would be revealed. He's saying that there is more coming and it's actually gonna come through suffering, right? We talked about this mystery and this paradox that we're gonna try and make sense of, that suffering is the means to victory for the people of God but it's also true for our identity. We are children of God, and God has allowed us to experience suffering along with everyone else in this world, along with creation itself even, in hopes that we would be set free, a level of freedom that we would not otherwise have, a level of glory that we would not otherwise have. The world is not as it ought to be, at the same time, though, sin did not throw God into a tailspin. Okay, that is important for us to understand. Sin did not find God on his heels saying, oh no, I didn't plan for this. Oh no, I didn't see it coming. 
No, he had a plan from the beginning. So why does any of this matter, guys? We're supposed to be talking about assurances here. Well, acknowledging what Paul says about his suffering, even if it's something hard, like it's God who subjected it, it actually does give us assurance. One, ladies, we can be assured that our pain does not signify that God has lost control. We can be assured that our pain does not mean that God has lost control. God is on his throne. He is holding all things together, even if it doesn't look like it. He holds the whole world in his hands. And secondly, we can be assured that our pain and our suffering is not meaningless. In Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, he turns all things for good. Your pain, the pain of the person you love, is not meaningless. It is working something. It is working towards something that you cannot see. It is the suffering and the pain that is moving the story forward. It's creating something better than what our eyes can see. It's creating something in us, guys, even in our bodies. They will be redeemed to a whole nother level. You are a child of God, but there is another level of that that you will behold on the other side of pain and suffering. Okay, but let's take it even more another step practically. How does this actually change our life? How's it changed this week? Guys, if this is true of us, right? We started this whole thing saying, Paul, could this actually be true? Or is it too good to be true? If it is true, then we need to replace wishing and waiting for hope and anticipation. Let's think about this. We, we hate waiting for things, right? We hate waiting in traffic, um, or we, we hate waiting in, in the line at the store. We wait hating, or we hate waiting for our Amazon package to finally arrive one day later on our doorstep. We hate waiting, but we love anticipating, right? Do you see that difference? Waiting at a red light versus anticipating Christmas? or anticipating a vacation. There is a big difference here. And guys, if we believe what Paul is saying, then no longer are we just going to wish away our pain or wait for life to get easier or wait for life to take off. But instead, we become women who are hoping in what we cannot yet see and who are anticipating a fuller sense of our identity still to come. It's the difference between taking suffering on our heels versus up on our tiptoes. Remember our definition for hope is faith up on tiptoes. Guys, last week what I didn't tell you is when I went up on tiptoes, both of my calves completely spazzed out into a Charlie horse and I almost collapsed on the floor. It's funny, I'm making fun of myself. Okay, never mind. Guys, could we get up on tiptoes? Could that be our posture? No more wishing our sufferings away, but replacing it for hope. When we expect God, who is on his throne, to work all things for good, we find this posture. 
And then we start moving down that line like we want to, to agree with him and to believe with him. Okay, Paul has told us, you can be sure that there are troubles. You can be sure that there is present sufferings. But then he says, you can be sure of your identity. And there's one more big topic that Paul crescendos to. He says, ladies, you can be assured of God's love for you. Man, don't tune me out just because it's familiar. This changes everything. We can be assured no matter what we're going through of his love for us. From this text specifically, I see just a couple expressions of that love. Let's close with these. One, we saw that he gives us his spirit. We can know that God loves us because he gives us the spirit. In this, in this space of, of sufferings, we have a helper. We read this week that the spirit was given by God at the request of Jesus for the children of God. We read that he's the go-between, that he's the intercessor. We also read that he's the spirit of truth. So this is the spirit who exhaled God's creative design at creation. He is now with us, giving us help, giving us comfort, reminding us that God is near. And he's praying for us. He takes our groanings and he translates them before the throne of mercy. While much could be said about the Spirit, here's a couple things. Here's my favorite reminder of this week from my own life. Guys, we looked up in those cross-references some truths about the Spirit, and we read that he is the Spirit of truth. How important is it to have truth when our emotions run high? And when do our emotions run high more than when we are in pain or loss or frustration or futility? Amidst chaos, amidst the blues, I, I need truth. When there is confusion, I need truth. When I don't even know how to pray, the Spirit, who knows the will of God, prays for me. This is the evidence of God's love for me. This took me back to some memories that I hadn't revisited in a long time. I have kind of more recent sufferings that I feel like I'm just talking about all the time with you guys as we're interacting with the Word of God. But this actually took me back to a little bit of an earlier season in my life. I feel like I had a really pretty easy childhood. Um, no, no childhood trauma. I mean, one big move, but uh, puberty didn't kill me off like I thought it would. And so I arrived at college and really hadn't had much to speak of for hard times. Um, but from August, mid-August until January 1st, was that five, six months? I had five people that I was very close with all die. One each month. It started uh, a little bit more distant. I never even had a grandparent die. And I had a, a friend die in a car accident. It's my first rattling as a child of God, trying to make sense of this. The next month, my uncle dies after a very short battle with cancer. The next like week, my granny dies. And then I, I go home for Thanksgiving, and at this point, I'm in a unique place. You know, I had been a spiritual machine, really experiencing nothing except the blessings and comfort of knowing God. And I'm home for Thanksgiving and wake up to a middle-of-the-night phone call. 
in my parents' home. And what I remember hearing after that phone call is groaning because um, my dad was a youth pastor and a group of guys from our home church were traveling out to a concert and they got in a car accident and one of them died. And it was my sister's long-term boyfriend. And I heard groanings, it wasn't words, it was groanings. And, And to experience that in the middle of the night, you know, and the extra fear that can come with that confusion and that chaos. And then one month later, my 22 year old cousin died. Her heart just failed and she died. And that next semester as I went back to school, here I am having to chew on these expectations I had had my whole life. You know, not that I would have articulated this, but what I had experienced is if you are a child of God, then he keeps suffering far from you. And it wasn't just these deaths that started to pile on each other, but it was always those, those um, like the secondary fruits of it or the anxiety that I started to have and the depression that I had. But when I went back to school that semester trying to rearrange all of these things, I would just lay over my Bible. And for one of the first times in my life, I, wasn't, I didn't have four commentaries open. I was open to the Psalms and I just cried. I don't even know that I prayed, guys. I just groaned. There was this evidence that I was in pain through my groaning. And guys, I cannot tell you how God changed my understanding of who he was and changed my understanding of his love for me. Because I wasn't producing anything for God in that season. I was swallowed whole with depression and anxiety and fear. Who was gonna die next? But the spirit met me there and I, and I knew he was there. And it turned like this head knowledge of knowing that God was everywhere at once to learning that God was right there with me in my pain and in my suffering. I found an assurance amidst a very broken time that God loved me because of his spirit. And ladies, sometimes when things just won't change, when things just won't let up, when we just don't get an answer, when we just won't heal, we can feel like we are alone. And Paul is saying, no, it is the opposite. If you are in pain, the spirit is closer than ever. If you are groaning out, the spirit is there to carry those groans and translate them before the throne of grace that you might find help in your time of need. But then Paul goes on and he says, it's not just that, but he also, God doesn't just give us a spirit. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God did the hardest thing for you, will he not also do the smaller thing? Ladies, he provided for your ultimate good. Will he not also provide for your other needs? Listen to this quote I found. Surely, surely if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it could never be imagined that ever he should after this deny or withhold from his people for who all sakes this was suffered, any mercy or any comfort or any privilege, spiritual or temporal, that which is good for them. If God did not withhold one lashing of Jesus, 
then why would he withhold from you anything that is for your good? What is for our good, not what is for our liking? We can be assured of God's love for us. And like we ended with last week, let me close it down with this. We can also know of God's love for us because not only did he give Jesus, but then Jesus came and identified with us. I don't know about you, but growing up, I often heard the phrase, invite Jesus into your heart. Anyone else grew up with that language? It's not wrong, so it's okay to raise your hand, right? Okay, yes. Invite Jesus into your heart. So I did it like six times a day for two years straight, right? Like, (laughs) please be in my heart, please be in my heart. That's the language that we often use. Christ is in us. And we find that in scripture. Christ is in us. But sometimes if, if that is all that we understand about our salvation, that Christ is in us, then there could be this fear that he could leave. There could be this fear that if I don't handle suffering well, if I don't have a good attitude, if I'm not strong, bold, courageous, and kind, and when life gets hard, then I am going to lose this. Then I will lose the Jesus that is in me. Ladies, what I want us to add to our understanding, this study, what I want us to add to the fact that Jesus is in us is that we are in him, okay? When God comes into our hearts, we are then also in Christ, okay? He lives in you and abides in you and you in him, but we read that the spirit then abides in us. It means he's holding on to us. What this means is that you are joined to Christ in a way that what is true of him becomes true of us. Okay, it's a little bit confusing, guys. So even if you can just start to understand this, this is worth it. I'm on a learning curve too. What it means, union with Christ, is that we are joined to him in a way that what is true of him becomes true of us. So we share in his work and we reap the goodness of his work. This truth is at the core of everything that Paul says. Why? Just keep asking questions, right? Why? Why is Paul so obsessed with this term in Christ? Why does he talk about us partnering with Christ or Christ identifying with us? Where did this come from? Okay, remember what Jesus, when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he say? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Does that seem odd to any of you? Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Had Paul seen Jesus? No. Did Paul rub shoulders with him? Did Paul stone Jesus like he stoned Stephen? No. So what did Jesus mean by it? He's saying, Paul, when you persecute my children, you persecute me. Paul, when my children suffer, I feel it. When my church is hurting, I feel it. When you stone Peter, it's like you're stoning me because I identify with my children in their sufferings. I do not stay up high and lofty in the heavens hoping that they can fix the mess that sin has made. No, I identify with them. God has provided for your eternity, ladies, by letting his, having his son die in your place. 
and then he gives you the spirit, the helper. Know that Christ is sharing with you in your sufferings and he invites you to share in his so that you can share in his victory. And that's why Paul can close and say, ladies, I wish he would say ladies, he never says ladies. Let's go with it, ladies. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved you.